Welcome to Writers on Writing on 88.9 KUCI-FM. We're broadcasting from the UC Irvine campus and we're streaming live at KUCI.org. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett and the show is recorded on April 2nd, 2021. My guest for the entire hour is Todd Goldberg. Todd is the New York Times bestselling author of over a dozen books, including Gangsterland, which was a finalist for the Hammett Prize, Gangster Nation, the House of Secrets, which he co-authored with Brad Meltzler, Living Dead Girl, a finalist for the LA Times Book Prize, and the popular Burn Notice series. His books have been published in a dozen languages and around the world, and were twice named a finalist for the VN International Thriller of the Year Award. He's here today to primarily discuss his new collection of short stories, The Low Desert, published by Counterpoint. Hello. It is lovely to be here. <laughs> it's lovely to have you. I am. Uh, I'm fully caffeinated and fully vaccinated. I'm ready <laughs> to talk about everything that is happening in the world today, Barbara. All right. Well, let's begin. And let's begin with this collection, The Low Desert. Um, talk about how the project came about. You know, it, it came from a couple different places, actually. Um, one, the, the, the big inspiring part of it was that I was really tired. <laughs> and I'd just written three really long books in a row. So I, I'd written Gangster Land, The House of Secrets, and Gangster Nation back to back to back. And they were all three over 450 pages long. And the idea of sitting down and writing another 450 page long novel did not sound great not physically, emotionally. Like, I just wanted to see some friends. I wanted to go out to dinner. I didn't want to constantly be thinking about killing a guy. Like, all of that stuff was in my head. And so I thought, oh, gosh, I would really like to write some short stories, which is a real passion of mine and something I, I hadn't really done in about 10 years, to be perfectly honest. Um, so that was part of it. The other part is that um, I had sold Gangster Land and Gangster Nation uh, to a very large streaming service for a television show that may or may not ever happen as these things exist. And it became clear to me that I needed more content. And I had this notion that, oh, you know what I can do is I can expand this universe out without concluding the actual trilogy that I'm writing by writing some short stories about um, some of these secondary characters and some other um, main characters that are already dead. Um, and so all that stuff was sort of swirling around at once. And then I, I ended up writing the title story, The Low Desert, which has nothing to do with either that second idea nor the first idea, but it was an entirely different idea, which is to write about the Salton Sea in the 1960s when it was being developed because it was being developed by organized crime. And so all of those notions were sort of swirling around together and I, I wrote that first short story and I realized I had, I had a, a whole other world to write about. And so I talked to my editor at CounterPoint, Dan Smetanka, and I mm -hmm. said, hey, hey, I wanna do something different. I wanna, I wanna write something a little bit different. What do you think? And I sort of laid it all out for him that I'm going to make a broader universe. I'm gonna connect these disparate stories to this universe. And I'm going to set out with a new franchise embedded inside of it about organized crime at the Salt Sea. And to his astonishing good taste and credit, Dan said, <laughs> let's do it, you know, let's do it. And the, the thing that's wonderful about my relationship with Dan and my relationship with CounterPoint Press in general 
is the counterpoint really takes big risks with the stuff that I do. You know, I, I don't write anything like anything else that they publish. And Dan has always told me, like, take your craziest notion and let's make it let's make it great. You know, let's let's do interesting things. Let's challenge the readers. Let's challenge ourselves and let's make great books. And so he was with me every step of the way while I wrote The Low Desert and the results um, have been super surprising to me, to be perfectly honest. I, I thought that I had written a good book. I wasn't I wasn't prepared for the kind of welcome that's received in the world. Hmm. Yeah, you know, what I noticed reading these stories was that, and I guess what surprised me a little bit was how literary they are. I mean, so many of them, you know, they had the crime thing going on, but just the liter literary aspect of the stories. I don't know what I was expecting, but I think, I think that surprised me. Well, I did a little something different, you know, with the short stories and I would do typically in a novel. You know, when, when you're writing commercial crime fiction, no one wants to read about someone's deep thoughts about their mother. You know, <laughs> like like no one reads Gangster Gangster Land or Gangster Nation and thinks, gosh, I, I wish Rabbi David Cohen saw Cupertine would tell us about his dad. Like no one thinks that. They just want shooting and blowing up and comedy. But in a short story, I think the expectations are a little bit different and I'm allowed to ruminate a little bit more and, and dive more um, psychologically into my characters. And so in this book, I... I think more often than not, I'm writing about the aftermath of a conflict versus the conflict itself. Mm -hmm. And I think that creates that sort of literary notion that, that you're experiencing. Yeah, and, and some of them are so bittersweet. The Last Good Man, I found to be such a bittersweet story. And I really wanna hear about where that came from, but is that your feeling too, that, that with the stories you could, you know, as you're saying, you could put more of that emotional content or, or, or the feeling, the mood in it? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And you know, The Last Good Man is a weird story. Um, I wrote that story originally in 1996 hmm. and I rewrote it again in 2005 for my first collection of short stories, Simplify. Um, and then it, we didn't use it. <laughs> and so I put it to one side and, and didn't think of it again. And then in my second collection of short stories, um, Other Resort Cities, I rewrote it for a third time and changed the, the title of it to Granite City. And I thought, okay, I'm done with that character. I, I know that I'm going to write about this specific guy again, Morris Drew, but I'm done with that story. And then I got asked to write a Christmas story for an anthology that Soho Press put out. And I said, I don't really, you know, <laughs> I don't really have a Christmas story, but I have a story that I think would be better if it took place at Christmas. And so I sent them that story and they were like, oh, we totally see that. Yeah, you should set it at Christmas. And so I rewrote it again. And this time it was called Blue Memories Start Calling. So I'm now, I'm now about 20 years into this <laughs> short story and we're putting together the collection, The Low Desert. And there's already two stories about Sheriff Drew in there. There's The Low Desert, the title story, and then another story mm -hmm. called The Salt that happens later on in the book. And I said to my editor, you know, I've got a third story with this guy that takes place at Christmas. And I really think I could use it as this kind of fulcrum point to lead us into The Salt. And, and my editor was like, well, let me see it. 
And he said, oh, this is really good. But a lot of it feels like it was written like 25 years ago. You don't even use that <laughs> voice anymore. And I was like, well, funny story. <laughs> <laughs> and so I rewrote it again from like page one to page 25, completely over again and, and turned it into The Last Good Man. And that's it, Barbara. I'm not writing that story <laughs> anymore. It's done. It's, it's done. done. It's done. But yeah, you know, I, I think the the bittersweet feelings that happen in some of these stories is a is a little different than what I write about in my novels. And I think the stories in general are a little sadder than what I write in my books. And I think again, the the form dictates the content here a little bit. And the short story form allows you to really hit hard on, on an emotion in a very contained space. Mm. Um, and then, of course, there are stories like Professor Rainmaker, which had so many funny spots. I mean, so many funny lines on 197. Um, you know, it occurred to Cooperman that working in academia and working in the illegal drug trade weren't all that different. People expected a certain level of punctuality, which he thought was a really bent business model. If any two fields demanded fluidity, it was academia and drug trafficking. I love that. <laughs> that was so funny. I even marked up the book with that one. <laughs> you know, that story comes from a very strange place, too. Um, so the for listeners who haven't read the book, it's about a guy who teaches hydrology at Cal State Fullerton. And he teaches there because he had developed a sprinkler that was too effective and, and it made the, the sprinkler industry shun him uh, because it, it told the world the truth, which is that your grass will grow whether or not you have sprinklers or not. And so he uses this technology to, uh, to grow marijuana. Well, but where it actually comes from as a story is a, 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 like one of those moments in life, Barbara, that I'm sure you've had where you just can't figure out how you got to a certain place. And at this time, <laughs> I, was, I was working as a, as a novelist already, but I also kept up like a pretty big freelance feature writer background as well. And I was inexplicably covering golf for Palm Springs Life magazine. <laughs> and I'd been doing it for years and I, and I hated it. I, I absolutely hated it. I, I don't know why I, I was doing it, Every time I'd be asked to write an article, I'd say yes. And then I just, I'd say, why am I doing this? I hate this. And so I got asked to write an article about uh, changes and advancements in sprinkler technology for <laughs> golf courses. And so like I had to interview like 40 people for a 750 word article. And I had like a six month long deadline because this, you know, they, they realized I had to really dig in deep on this. And it took everything out of me to write those 750 words. And I was sitting here at my desk and my wife came in and was like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> and I was like, I, I have to write this article about sprinkler technology and it's killing me. I hate doing this. And Wendy was like, you know, you don't need to do those kinds of jobs anymore, right? <laughs> and I was like, uh, I don't? She's like, no. <laughs> No, not, not for many years have you needed to do these <laughs> kinds of jobs. <laughs> She's like, I thought you just liked doing it. I was like, I hate it. I hate it. 
And so I turned in that story and I was like, God, when am I ever going to need to know any of this information? And then it was like, ding, 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 ding. Yeah. Oh, a story. <laughs> and there it was. And there it was. Nothing's lost, right? Nothing's right. lost on a fiction writer. Exactly. I, I love that so many of your characters are regular people and mm. Professor Rainmaker Bongo has uh, childcare problems because his wife is going to classes. Talk about that. Talk about some of the characters in this book and, you know, just giving, giving characters in, well, in mystery fiction, um, a life, um, a, a personality or, or character depth. You know, I, I, I don't ascribe to, I think, sort of what might be a common notion of good guys and bad guys. And, and because of that, I, I sort of recognize that um, even criminals, criminals think they're the good guy most of the time, right? Um, but they're also, they have jobs and they have spouses and they have kids and they're, you know, like, sometimes you can't go rob a bank because you don't have someone to watch your baby. Like, <laughs> there's all of this stuff. And that's, that's just the the reality of this job that these people have chosen. And I'll tell you, you know, where, so Bongo, uh, there's a character named Bongo Pocatillo, um, who is in, who's a, a drug dealer in, in Rainmaker. But where he came from, actually, is, so where I live, I live in India, and I live in a big gated community on a golf course with a giant man-made lake. So I, it looks like I just live, you know, in paradise, and I do. But a mile away from my house, is the hub of essentially a Mexican mafia clique. And they have full run of this neighborhood. There's, there's um, tagging on the stop signs that says NWS, which means no warning shots. And these dudes live essentially with impunity in this giant you know, subdivision. In between our houses, or in between like where I live and where that, that subdivision is, is a super target. <laughs> it doesn't matter if you're clicked up with the Mexican mafia or you're a crime novelist, you, everyone needs the super target. Like that's your spot. Like that's where you're going to get your, <laughs> your detergent or your, you know, your toothpaste or whatever, or your t-shirts. And so on a Friday night, you go into the super target and it's the country club class and, <laughs> and the Mexican mafia. <laughs> and they're all chasing around kids that are screaming and throwing balls around and they're just pissed off. And they're like, I need to get my wool light so I can go do my shot collar <laughs> business. And I just need to get my peanut butter so I can go home and drink white wine or whatever it is I do. And so always sort of seeing these guys with like the neck tattoos of a 13 crawling at the side of their head, trying to wrangle their kid in front of the pharmacy to get some anti-itch cream. Like that's, that's the sort of thing that I pay attention to. Like, these are people who are doing criminal activities, but on a Friday night, like, hey, the wife's out, you got to take the kid to Target, and there's a, he's got a fungus, and you got to take care of it. <laughs> and, and so I think about that a lot. I think about how, how people, you know, end up in the places that they are, but I also think about what they're doing when they're not committing their crimes. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, I, I also think like, when we, when we write stories about good guys and bad guys, criminals and cops and all that stuff, we're, we're really writing about either their best day or their worst day. If we're writing about a crime fighter, we're, we're talking about 
the day they solve the, the big case. If we're talking about a criminal, we're, we're more often than not talking about the time they screwed up so majorly that now there's a story to be told. And I like to then look at the consequences of those days. And writing stories about them is often easier to do than in the scope of a novel. Hmm. Well, I would love to hear you read from one of your stories. Would I would that? love to, yes. Okay. So um, I've very carefully selected a portion <laughs> that will not get you kicked off of the radio by the FCC. Thank you. Um, so this is a little bit of the short story, um, The Salt. And um, this is a story that concludes a trilogy that includes The Low Desert and The Last Good Man. And it's about a lawman named Morris Drew. So I'll just read a little bit of that. Okay. Beneath the water, beneath time, beneath yesterday is the salt. The paper says that another body has washed up on the north shore of the Salton Sea, its age the provenance of anthropologists. Washed up is a misnomer, of course, because nothing is flowing out of the Salton Sea, this winter of interminable heat. It's January 10th, 13 years into a century I never thought I'd see, and the temperature hovers near 100 degrees. The Salton Sea is receding back into memory revealing with each inch another year, another foundation, another hand that pulls from the sand and grasps at the dead air. Could be the bodies are from Tom Sanderson's family plot, first swallowed by the sea in 1971, or perhaps it is Woodrow East's girlfriend, risen up from the muck at long last, or maybe it is my sweet Catherine, delivered back to me in rusted bone. I fold the newspaper and set it down on my lap. Through the living room window, I see Rebecca, my wife of seven months, pruning her roses. They are supposed to be dormant by now, she told me yesterday. And that they are alive and flowering is nothing short of a miracle. Much is miraculous to Rebecca. We met at the Cancer Treatment Center in Rancho Mirage a little over a year ago. Both of us bald and withered our lives clinging to a chemical cocktail. How long did they give you, she asked. Nothing specific, I said. The truth was my doctor told me that I had a year, possibly less, but that at my age, the script was likely to be without too many twists. I'd either live or I wouldn't. And after spending every afternoon for three months hooked to an IV, I wasn't sure if that was completely accurate. What kind of life was that? Was What kind of life was this that predicated itself on waiting? I'm already supposed to be dead, she said. You should buy a lottery ticket, I said. She rummaged in her purse and pulled out a handful of stubs and handed them to me. Pick out one you like, she said, and if you win, we'll split it. And that is from The Salt, the happiest moments of that short story. I, <laughs> I regret to inform you. <laughs> well, that was Todd Goldberg reading from The Low Desert, Gangster Stories, published by Counterpoint. Yeah, I love that story. That's another one that's so kind of bittersweet, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of a plotless story about a person trying to figure out what to do when their mind has, as I write in the story, essentially turned to liquefaction. So the main <laughs> character um, is, uh, you know, is essentially has Alzheimer's or the beginnings of Alzheimer's and the past and the present are running into each other. 
in his mind. And that's not good because he's a man with a gun. Mm. Yeah, not good. So are there any stories in this collection that gave you a hard time? Oh God, all of them, Barbara. All of them? <laughs> okay, which gave you the hardest time? The hardest time... Um, well, this is, it's tricky. The hardest one to write was a story called Ragtown that happens at the, towards the end of the book. It's the last story I wrote in the book and it contains the biggest, what I view as the gasp moment in the book. When you realize you're reading a story that is actually about a character you've been worried about for the last 250 pages. Mm -hmm. And you don't know that until about five or 10 pages into the short story. And so it, it's a story about uh, a man named Jacob who owns a restaurant in Las Vegas called Odessa, which is a, uh, a Russian themed restaurant. And there's a couple of those in, in Las Vegas. And he is the son of, a, of an organized crime figure in Las Vegas. And it's a story both of memory and of present day. And it's also written in both English and in Russian. <laughs> which also proved to be a challenge for me because um, I don't speak Russian and I needed to figure out a way to convey that it was a story written in Russian. So all of those things came into play, but the largest thing was that I had to make a decision about a character that I had not ever made a decision about. And that is a, a character um, who is the daughter of another character who has gone missing. And so mm -hmm. I decided that Ragtown was going to be the story where I revealed what happened to this person. And um, it was, you know, it was, it was actually really emotional for me, Barbara, because I had lived with these characters in my head for a really long time. So the story Palm Springs that is in this book was also mm -hmm. in my, my collection of the resort cities. And I rewrote it again for this book. And it's about this cocktail waitress named Tanya who adopts uh, a young a young girl from Russia after she wins a lot of money playing poker. Uh, this was back when you could adopt children from Russia. Um, and the stories that I've written about her in, in other resort cities and then in this book are not crime stories, but they're stories that are the result of crimes, that her life and her career choices and her daughter's life are all being irrevocably changed because of choices gangsters and crooks are making just outside the circle she can see. And that was hard to write, but also I just really liked writing this, this character of Tanya and I really gave her a horrible life and I feel really, really bad about the things that I've done to her because she seems like a real person to me. And so in this concluding story in Ragtown, writing the story where I reveal what happens to her child, um, like it took me a long time and it took a lot out of me emotionally. And I just sort of sat here at my desk and thought, well, I got to do it. I just got to do it. I just got to do it. And then I did it. <laughs> mm. Well, you know, well, I want to ask you about Tanya because um, I, I love that story and I, I'm curious where she came from. But before we talk about Tanya, I, I'm curious if Ragtown, because Ragtown is positioned in the book, it's um, the next to the last story. So it's kind of where the climax of a novel would come. Right. Is that, is that why it's there? Absolutely, mm -hmm. absolutely. The, the ordering of the stories in this book is extraordinarily intentional. Um, we spent a, a lot of time 
trying to figure out the rhythms and um, the highs and the lows. Because what I want when you read a collection of stories is I want it to feel like you're reading a novel, essentially. I want you to have those same sort of aha moments and emotional um, dips and, and all those sorts of things. Um, but also I, I want you to, to get some relief by the end, um, like to feel like, oh, okay, you know, there's not everything is bleak. <laughs> and to, the story that I do end on, it ends hopefully, but it's not the kind of hope that normally happens in a book. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the, the, the ordering is, is, is a hard thing to do. And I was just telling someone else about this the other day, one of my students, there's a wonderful old essay by a writer named David Jouse called Stacking Stones. And, and it's about how to order a short story collection. It's about how to get different stories to fit with one another. And I think about that a lot when I'm ordering stories because it's not about necessarily putting things that are thematically linked close to each other, but it's sort of like making sure like, oh, that notch is in there and that notch is in there. And if you do it right, it's gonna look like it was organic. And, and, you'll, and if you do it wrong, it's all gonna tumble around you. And so I really think some of the response to this book has been because of the way, I say we, because it was me and, and my editor, Dan Spatanka, ordered the book together, you know, saying, all right, this has to go here. This is the dramatic high point of this book. But also it means that you have to start in the right place. And so I started the book with a story that you're familiar with mm -hmm. uh, called The Royal Californian, which is a super, super noir but it's also really bizarre and hopefully funny and then contains a really bizarre character <laughs> that I won't reveal right now because it's more fun if you read it and then encounter it. Um, because what that story does is it lets you know anything can happen in this book, anything, anything. And, and so that, that was like a, that was a, a conscious choice that we made that will, that then pays off in a story like Ragtown 200 pages away. Yeah, as you know, I love the Royal Californian and uh, I was happy to see it at the start. I, it was, it is just such a bizarre story. Uh, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a deeply troubled person. <laughs> well, Tanya, where did Tanya come from? Um, you know, sometimes you get inspired by a sound or a voice or you see something. In this case, I was listening to a song called Palm Springs by a, uh, a musician that I'm friends with, uh, a singer named Jay Ray who is now the lead singer of a band called the Cutthroat Brothers. Um, but he had written this song when he was a solo artist called Palm Springs. And it's about um, essentially two people going to um, the casinos in Palm Springs and feeling desperate. And I was listening to that song and, and out for a walk. And all of a sudden I just thought like, man, there's nothing more depressing than being a cocktail waitress in an Indian casino in downtown Palm Springs. And then as many things often happen for me, like well, how did she get there? Why is she there? Why isn't she in Vegas? And so all of a sudden this character started to develop in my head over the course of about three minutes because I was thinking about something else. And I, I had to rush home to write down the details that I had, which was 
she was a cocktail waitress and she's cocktailed at every casino in between Reno and Palm Springs in the last 30 years, basically. Like, there it is. It's right there. Why is she here? Why does she feel desperate? And just all of these ideas came flooding out. And I wish I knew like how to get that more often. I'd be a far more prolific writer, <laughs> but it was just there, you know, it, it just showed up. And she was at the time when I wrote that story initially. So the first time I wrote that story was um, in 2009. And then I rewrote it for this book. I hadn't, hadn't even read the story in a, in a very long time. Um, that was the first time in fact that I had written anything from a woman's point of view. And it changed the way that I write, writing that character and changed the way I write third person specifically. And I've gone on to, you know, write from a, a woman's point of view many times. I, you know, my book, The House of Secrets is from a, a woman's point of view. Um, but that character has always stuck with me because I find her so recognizable. I see her all the time um, here in the desert. You know, I see her at the restaurants we go to or the bars we go to or at the casinos. She's there. You know, she is an amalgamation also of a thousand different people I've known who've had that job and some bit of that life. And often, more often than not, in these people that I've known, they also have a pipe dream. And it's it's so strange. When, when I lived in Las Vegas, we, we had friends like this where... They were working as a cocktail waitress at a strip club, but they really wanted to open a dog grooming business. Like, and so they were saving up to open up grooming deals, you know, like <laughs> I, I've all, I'm always interested in someone's pipe dream and, and whether or not they ever achieve it. Um, and so Tanya is, you know, she's an amalgamation of these people that I know. She came to me during a song while I was on a walk. But then she also now just is a human being that lives somewhere between my eyes and my ears, somewhere in my head. And, and I, you know, I think her story is done, but her voice is still in my head. And that's, that's a hard thing for me because I think, gosh, maybe I should write something else about her because I've, I've written these other stories and I've, you know, I've enjoyed it and people seem to like hearing about her, but I don't know what that story would be because I feel like I've already written her end. What do you mean that it, it changed how you write? Um, I think it made me, um, in third person specifically, really become far more detail-oriented in the peculiar way people look at the world. So if I'm going to write a story that doesn't have a lot of dialogue and doesn't have a lot of actual front story conflict, where most of the stuff that's happening is happening in memory, or happening in the consequences of someone's actions in their head, then every line of thought that I write has to be beautiful or strange or peculiar or particular and has to be really detailed. And, um, and Tanya is a very ruminative character. She analyzes everything that's in front of her. Every, every move a person makes, she analyzes it. And so that sort of... Um, sort of obsessiveness that she has. And it's not obsessive like she's monk or something, but you know, she's, she's very aware of, um, I guess, people's mannerisms. That changed the way I, I found out how to write third person in a way that would not be boring to me. Because um, for many, many years, I wrote almost exclusively in first person. And now I write almost exclusively in third person. Mm. And it's because I figured out how to, to marry voice and conflict together in a way that wasn't boring. 
That's interesting. Will she make it into a novel, do you think? I mean, is she there enough for you to go, you know what, maybe she needs to be in a book? Maybe. A longer um, story. Maybe. I, I don't know yet. I mean, she's she's there somewhere in me. Um, and, you know, I've got a champagne problem, which is I have a, another novel to write um, to conclude the Gangsterland trilogy. And then I would really like to write about the salt and sea. Um, and that will take me I'm 50 now, so that should take me to about 56. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe maybe Tanya will come after that. But she's a far more literary character than I think I I, I typically write about these days, and so that might that might prove a challenge. Hmm. What about names? What about names of your characters? Some are quite unusual, and some are you know sort of normal names, right? Catherine, kind of a normal name, um, but. You know, we have uh, Peaches Cocotillo, I think. And... <laughs> that is a weird name. Um, so part of it is a, a simple thing, which is I'm sitting here at my desk in my home right now. And beside me are, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, five bookcases that have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven shelves per bookcase. So I have 35 shelves of bookcases. And so when I need a name, what I'll often do is I'll turn and I'll look at all the books and I'll take a last name from one author and a first name from another author and I'll move them around and suddenly we have a name. Um, so, so, you know, on, on occasion, the names mean nothing to me. Um, but then there is a character like Peaches Pocatillo. And so Peaches Pocatillo is a gangster who shows up in the short story Gangway, which is the last story in the book. But Peaches Pocatillo is the main antagonist of my book, Gangster Nation. You meet him 20 years later in, in Gangster Nation. Um, and in that case, like I like to give gangsters stupid names because gangsters have stupid names. <laughs> like they, <laughs> and in the Gangsterland books, it's kind of a joke when someone says like, why do you guys give each other such stupid names? And for him, I've never really explained why he's called Peaches. And no one ever calls him by his name. So you never hear anyone say, hey, Peaches, will you get me this thing? Um, but he is known as Peaches Pocatillo. And I like, like mostly Barbara, to be perfectly honest, I like amusing myself <laughs> <laughs> with this stupid mundane detail of never having anyone say his name or ask, why is this guy called Peaches? Um, but it, it also adds a level of surrealism essentially to this, that you know that you're one, st one standard deviation away from reality, right? Like you think, okay, this is not quite real life because why would this guy who is the, the baddest badass in the book, why is he named Peaches? <laughs> and I, uh, I, just, I just like it. Um, but then, you know, there's, there's I, should, I should note, where the names are are more important to me personally. So there's a story called Goon Number Four, mm -hmm. and it's about that nameless, faceless goon that's in the back of um, you know any sort of crime show where he's holding the suitcase and wearing the sunglasses. And I've always <laughs> I'm always interested in like that guy. Like, how did that guy get that job? Where you're just like generic badass. And so I was writing the story, and I had to give him a name. And I was sitting here at my desk and I was thinking about like all these people I had known my entire life, you know, who were just sort of like good, nice, decent people. Like, and then I thought like, who's like the nicest guy I went to high school with? 
and I thought Blake Webster is the <laughs> nicest guy I went to high school with. So I'm going to make Blake Webster goon number four in hopes that one day he's in Barnes and Noble and he picks up this new book and finds himself. It'll, it'll give him a little bit of joy <laughs> to, to find himself like the, you know, just an absolute hitman assassin goon. It'll make him, it'll make him joyful. <laughs> yeah well you know we should entertain ourselves right and, absolutely you know? absolutely so I, i'm curious I mean, we may have talked about this some other time but your mom was a gossip columnist yes you have a brother who's a crime writer yes. and a tv writer and you're a writer did you what was it like growing up i mean were books a big part of your life and and were you a writer from the time you were a little kid? Yeah, and I should also note, my sisters have written books together. Mm, so I my didn't sister, know that. Yeah, my sister, Linda Woods, is uh, is a well-known artist. And she and my sister, Karen Danino wrote a series of, of big best-selling books about art and inspiration. Um, so between the four of us kids, now granted, Lee and I have the majority, um, we've published something like 100 books. Mm. So it's it's a lot, and my sister Karen is a is a lawyer, but before she was a lawyer, she was a journalist. Um, so it, it's it is for sure the family business. My uncle is a true crime writer. Um, my dad was a journalist as well, a TV news journalist. My grandmother was a journalist. So it it, it really is a big part of what what we do as a family. Um, but. You know, I mean, and books were always a, a huge, huge part of, of our lives. My mom really, um, you know, made sure that we all had a, a, an appreciation for the written word. I, I, as many people know, was profoundly dyslexic as a child. And so I didn't really learn to read until I was about 10. Mm. Um, and then once I did learn to read, I was, I was voracious with it. Um, but, you know, I think growing up, what it really was, was there's a lot of storytellers <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and that, that means a lot of liars <laughs> living in the house. Um, and some of the lies were, were so stupid that any decent crime writer like my brother could figure out when I was lying about something, even though he was not yet a crime writer, he was already wired for these things. Um, so all of us had, you know, big stories that we were telling, some of them true, some of them not true. But we, you know, the four of us kids were a unit. Um, my mom and my dad, my dad was absent. He wasn't, he wasn't in our lives by the time I came along. And my mom, unfortunately, was, was not a sane person. And so the four of us kids were really bonded together um, very, very closely from a very early age. And, and the difference in age between me and, and my brother is nine years. So it, it's a significant difference between oldest and youngest. Um, but we always operated as a, as a real unit with one another. And that unit also always involved talking about books and talking about TV and talking about movies, because that sort of entertainment was always a big escape from the reality of the, the bad stuff that was happening at home for us. Mm -hmm. And for me, and also for Lee, for sure, from a very early age, writing was our escape from the reality of what was happening on the other side of that door. We could both dive into a fake life 
as children and not have to deal with the with the with the screaming, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think part of what frankly has made all four of us successful as writers to to have four siblings all publish a lot of books. Part of it is the ability to be vulnerable with your emotions. And we were each really vulnerable to each other with our emotions and being vulnerable with your emotions to other people to say, I'm in pain or I'm hurting or I'm scared. I think that really allows you as a fiction writer or a nonfiction writer, because I do a lot of both, to very plainly say the things that create drama, vulnerable emotions, real people experiencing real things. And I think that makes for successful writers in general. And what about what about mystery fiction or crime fiction? How did how did that happen? Um, you know, part part of this is Lee's fault. Actually, <laughs> I don't get to blame Lee for enough. So when Lee went off to college, he left me with bags and bags and bags of books. And so when I finally got the ability to read, I started reading these books. And what he had left me was. Uh, Robert Parker's Spencer novels, Donald Westlake, old Elmore Leonard, John McDonald, Jim Thompson, like the the great noir writers that he had read and had all their paperbacks is what he left me. And it's almost like that scene in Almost Famous, you know, when he realizes that his sister has left him with all the record albums that would, <laughs> that would change his life. So Lee left me with this sort of history of American crime fiction. And he also left me with, you know, like the destroyer and, you know, the vigilante or, you know, any of the, anything that was like X name number 85, he left me that also. (laughs) Um, And for a person who had just learned how to read and then was able to pick it up very quickly, these sort of old noir books, specifically these like gold medal paperback books, they're so plainly written, you know, and they're so fast, 160, 180 pages, you get the full story, primarily dialogue for a new reader who suddenly has the entire world open up for them. Those books were very easy for me to digest. And so suddenly, you know, by the time I started to read it about 10 to by the time I was about 13, which is when I started to realize that there were women in the world <laughs> um, and that that began to take some of my attention away from books um you know i digested the history of american noir as my young adult fiction so where the average kid today might go read the fault in your stars i was reading the killer inside me <laughs> and you know I, I i think that had an effect i gotta be perfectly honest with you <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean i i think like introducing an 11 year old to jim thompson is a mistake <laughs> and look he turned out okay yeah i mean I, i've only killed hundreds of people in my books not in life so that's good oh that's funny we have a few minutes left with todd goldberg his book is the low desert published by Counterpoint. Um, I'm curious what reaction you get from desert residents about your stories and about your novels. You know, the nice thing about being sort of the favored son of uh, Palm Springs is I, um, because I grew up here after we moved from Northern California. So I I lived in Walnut Creek until I was uh, 13 or 14. 
and then moved here for essentially for high school and then have been basically back here for the rest of my life. Uh, I get a I get an inordinate amount of press when a new book comes out. Barbara, I'm, I'm not kidding here. They put it on the front page of the, of the local <laughs> newspaper. Like on the, that's great. On the front page of the paper when my new book was out was my giant head and <laughs> and the book. And I was like, well, slow news day, but this is this is great. So the response locally has always been um, overwhelmingly positive, and it's extraordinarily gratifying for me to be able to. Um, be received like that here in, in the desert, a, a place that I, I love and that I've, you know, is part of my identity as a writer, but also part of my identity as, um, as an educator as well. Um, obviously, I run, the, I run the MFA program at UC Riverside that is housed here in the desert also. So, you know, I'm out in the community a, a great deal in that role as an administrator for UC Riverside. Um, and you know, I'll be having conversations with folks that are about, you know, some larger cultural issue that I've been charged to talk about. And then afterwards, someone will say, I just need to tell you, I just love those books you write with that hitman rabbi. <laughs> it's like, well, <laughs> thank you. I'm like, it's not a secret. You, we can speak out loud about this. <laughs> um, but for this book specifically for the low desert, it's been a little bit different because I'm writing so clearly about things that are based on truth here in the desert. So for instance, in the Royal Californian, um, if you don't want to be spoiled listeners, turn off your radio for one second. <laughs> there is a character who is a clown. And the truth is, as you know, Barbara, um, <laughs> from coming to the desert, is that inexplicably in the greater Palm Springs region, there's not one but two people who dress up as clowns and just show up in bars and restaurants. And it's creepy as hell. And people just, like, no one really pays attention. Like, oh, Harpo's here. Like, <laughs> like no, that's, that's not something to just brush off. There's a creepy clown that just walked into the bar. And so when I put a creepy murder clown in a story and set it in the desert, people know what I'm talking about. <laughs> And they either find it amusing or they find it shocking because they're friends with this, this you know, guy who dresses like a clown. But that sort of thing, you know, if you don't live in the desert, it seems really weird. If you do live in the desert, that's just like, that's just some desert stuff, you know? That's just some stuff that happens out here. <laughs> do you think you would be there if you weren't involved with UC Riverside? Oh yeah, ab absolutely, absolutely. I, I love living in the desert. Um, you know, I moved back here in 2000 after my first book came out and I and UC Riverside was uh, a, a distant notion at that point. Hmm. I, was I was teaching at UCLA at the time and driving in from Palm Springs twice a week to teach there. Um, but, you know, I, uh, I found early on that I needed a slower pace of life if I was going to get the kind of work done that I wanted to get done. If I lived in LA, I'd, I'd, I'd have two books total <laughs> because there's, there's, mm -hmm. always, there's always something else to do or I'd, I'd be in traffic all the time. And I didn't, I didn't want that. And I find living in the desert meditative for the art, for sure. But also, like, I have a house. <laughs> <laughs> And if I lived in Los Angeles, I'd, I'd probably still have a house, but it wouldn't be as nice. And I'd be driving on the 405 all the time and I'd be angry. And you don't want me angry, Barbara. <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> you, don't, you don't want me to be mad when I started reading murder fiction at 10 years old. 
Well, well, speaking of, uh, well, not really speaking of murder fiction, but the pandemic has been kind of murderous in, in many ways. And what's it like launching a book during the pandemic? It's really, really strange. Um, there's some pluses for sure. And the, the big plus is just very similar to what you and I are doing right now, which is technology has allowed me to do more events and more press and um, and see more people than I normally would if I were just on a book tour. Um, if I were on a book tour, I'd probably do five cities. I'd have a couple of interviews in each city and that would be that. Um, but for, for me, so this book came out on February the 2nd and I've literally had an event or some form of media that I've done three to four days a week since February 2nd. And that's been terrific. That's been, that's been wonderful for me and the book and the success of the book and, and getting it out there. But my God, I miss I miss waking up at a courtyard inn in St. Louis with <laughs> an old cheeseburger beside me and a bunch of bookmarks <laughs> in the bed and just think where I where do I go tomorrow? Who am I talking to? I really miss being in front of people and signing books and shaking hands and taking pictures and seeing all the fans and and seeing all the booksellers. You know, one of the great joys of of doing this thing is that every 18 months when a new book of mine comes out, I go out there and I get to see these friends at bookstores that have, have allowed me to live this life that I have and to go out to dinner and catch up with them and see pictures of their kids and all that other stuff that is just sort of secondary to like, hey, I wrote a book and I'd like you to buy it. Like these are personal relationships and the book business might seem like a giant daunting thing for those outside of it, but it's really small. You know, it, it's run by all the same people for many, many years, for good or for bad. Um, and you see them and it, you know, it's like a, it's like a reunion every time. So I've missed that part of it, but, you know, I'll pick it back up on the paperback. Yeah. Yeah. And you're, you're one of the most extroverted writers I know. Yeah. There's something deeply wrong with me. I don't, <laughs> I, and, and in that way, the, the pandemic has also been very hard. Um, because I, you know, I get energy from being around other people and, and doing stuff. But I, I've been really prolific during this time. I mean, I finished The Low Desert in April of 2020. So I was writing this book during this pandemic. And it, you know, it shows up a little bit in some of the stories. There's some, some hints to that, to the way I was feeling, I suspect. Um, but I've been, I've been really focused on just writing a lot and doing the things that I want to do and using this time productively while also, you know, constantly fearing for my life going to Target. Like, <laughs> it, it's, not, it's not normal to, you know, to be clutching this mortal coil just to get some, some wool light, you know. But <laughs> there I am. Um, and, you know, maybe that'll be good for the art at some point. But now that I'm vaccinated, I feel such a profound sense of relief um, that there's going to be another side to this life, you know? Right. And that right. feels great. Mm. Do you think people are reading more? Do you think they've been reading more during this time? Oh, for sure. I mean, if they're not watching, you know, the Night Stalker documentary. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, the anecdotally, you know, when I read the articles in Publishers Weekly or whatever, and it says book sales are up, I, I, that seems great. Um, I, I think also sometimes people are just buying books because it gives them something to do. I don't know if they're reading them. Um, but yeah, I, I think by, by virtue of, you know, 
reaching the end of Amazon Prime or the end of Netflix and you realize, well, there is the history of the written word I could dive into. (laughs) It does does seem like people are are buying books. And I think that book coverage has actually been quite good during the last um, year or so as well um, because people have space. There's, you know, there's, they need to put something in these magazines and newspapers. Um, and to be honest too, not that I've lied up to this point, but <laughs> I, I was not, um, I was scared to be putting out a collection of short stories. That's the word I was looking for is scared. Collections of short stories do not ultimately sell that well typically. And there's not a lot of collections of crime fiction that are out there. And so I was really worried that this book was going to come out and would not find an audience or press um, or, or readers, period, because who wants to read a bunch of crime stories? But it turns out right now, people really have an insatiable taste for, for conspiracies and crimes and <laughs> people doing nefarious deeds. And um, it seems like the book came out at the right time. Knock on, knock on wood here next to my desk. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's a wonderful collection and you've gotten just tremendous blurbs for this book as well. I did. uh, I called in all my favors. (laughs) Todd, thank you so much once again for uh, being here. And uh, My pleasure. I'm so happy to be here. And thanks for doing this show, even during the middle of a plague. Like, Barbara, you made a show during a plague. (laughs) Imagine. Imagine how that is. That's crazy. Uh, and you have a podcast. Um, quickly tell uh, our listeners about your podcast. Oh, yeah. I'm uh, the co-host of Literary Disco with the uh, essayist and radio personality, Julia Pistel, and the actor and filmmaker, Ryder Strong. Uh, we've been making Literary Disco now for nine years. And you can you can catch us on LitHub or on any place you download your podcast from. Mm, thank you. And yes, all of you out there, you writers, you know, remember to stay in your chair or before your standing desk and get your words, get your words on the page. And if you uh, just tuned in, you are totally late, but this show will be podcast uh, pretty soon. So go to wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to Writers on Writing. And uh, thank you for listening. And again, thank you, Todd. My pleasure. Thank you.